Masechet Ketubot, Tafsadi Vav, we begin the 11th Perek. Almana Nizonet Minichse Yetomim, Maaseya Deha Shelahen, Ben Hayavin Bikvurata. We're talking about the relationship between a widow and the inheritors, will be the sons of her husband, which are not necessarily her children, they could be his children from another marriage. And we learn that a widow, although she can get a one-time payout of her ketubah, she may prefer to uh, be fed, to keep the keep the ketubah uh, uh, in the um, inheritance, in the property of the orphans, and the orphans instead will pay her sustenance, um, just like the husband has to pay sustenance when he's alive. So the estate will pay her sustenance after the husband has died. Uh, so that's what happens. And in return, their, her wages, the work that she does, will go to the uh, orphans. Just like when they were married, he paid for her food and sustenance, and she did work and chores and you know, produced uh, dough and spin, sp- uh, spins wool, and the wages for whatever she works goes to the husband. So that's a fair exchange. However, the orphans do not have to pay for the burial of the widow. Uh, that's because when the husband is alive, the husband does have to pay for his wife's burial, and that's in exchange for his right to to be to inherit his wife's property. So he he gets the inheritance and he pays for a burial. However, the um, her inheritance is not going to be in uh, her, her 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 money is not going to be inherited by the orphans, and so they don't have to pay for a burial. Instead, if she has children from another marriage or her closest family, they'll be the ones that will inherit her or her ketuvah payment. And so since they inherit, whoever inherits the person is the, is the one that has to pay for the burial. Okay, that's the Mishnah. Ibayalehu question. Nizonet tenan oha nizonet tenan. In this Mishnah, we read it almanan nizonet, but maybe there's supposed to be a he over here. This difference of one, one letter makes a big impact. Nizonet tenan uchshanse uchanshe galil, velasagi de la yahavila. Do we say nizonet? And reading it that way, it's prescriptive. A widow must be sustained from the property of the orphans. Uh, that is, until she says, I'd rather a payout, that's her prerogative, or until she's married. When she gets married, then her husband takes her new husband takes care of her. But as long as she's single and she wants to continue getting sustained, um, rather than her one uh, lump sum payment, the orphans have to give it to her. And that's what they do in Galil, where they write a clause in the marriage contract says that it's her right to remain in the husband's house. She can remain living there and that the orphans have to support her. Uh, and it's not within the rights of the orphans to say, Here, here's your ketubah, get out of the house, we're not sustaining you. So that would be without a hit, means it's prescriptive. It's prescriptive. The orphans must uh, sustain her as long as she wants. Or if we add a he, then we read it as a condition. 
a widow who is sustained from the, uh, the property of the orphans, meaning if they want to sustain her because they don't want to pay the one out one time payment because that let's for example that would mean that they have to sell land in order to give this big payout so they'd rather keep the land and then pay her over uh, just keep her sustained over time and so if they uh, want to they can do that or uh, so if they want to they can give her one time payment or if they decide they want to sustain her that's they can and then in return they get the wages so is this a prescriptive that they have to or a condition that if they sustain her then they get the wages so we don't know if it has a hair or not okay as a tangent this question of whether this be is read with a hair or not was a question that was asked to Hadam Bam in his Tishuvot he um, he records the following uh, someone asked a question to Rambam uh, about this and uh, the fact that we're not sure if it says Hanizonet or Nizonet Wait a second, why is the Gemara asking if it has a hair or not? The Mishnah is in front of us. Go check your Mishnah. Right? Why why are we asking about it? The Rambam's answer is uh, He says regarding the uh, text of the Mishnah, what exactly it is, you cannot ask for a definitive answer. Because is the text of the Mishnah like the text of the Tanakh, the especially the uh, the the Torah text that was kept in the Bet HaMikdash, the, you know, the best version that was the model for all others, there in the Torah, we're careful regarding any extra letter or missing letter. It has to be perfect, but the Mishnah is not transmitted letter for letter perfectly. How would we know how Rabbeinu Rabbi Yudanasi wrote the Mishnah? We only know it from the elders and not from books, which means that I'm suggesting that the main way Mishnah was transmitted was not from written text, but rather orally from the elders who would teach it uh, and recite it. And so sometimes you can remember, some remembered Nizonet, some remembered Hanizonet, and uh, if, if they, even if there were books, they weren't as reliable as a Sefer Torah uh, that was uh, kept uh, with a hair or without a hair. So it's fascinating because it reveals Rambam's uh, opinion that the Mishnah was transmitted primarily orally, even if, even though he wrote Katav Rabenu, uh, which would suggest that Rabenu, uh, Rabenu Ryudanasi uh, did write it, but even if he wrote it, it was transmitted orally. Okay, uh, this is important because it clarifies what people often think that Rambam, because in the Haktama, the introduction to Mishnah Torah, he wrote that Shinu Lachamim Barabim Ryudanasi taught it, which is orally, Mishnah to the public, um, and everybody wrote it. So people assume that according to Rambam, the Mishnah was written. Um, but here you see that um, maybe, maybe it was written, but primarily the transmission was oral, and that's what allowed for these types of uh, 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 these types of variants. That even the Gemara itself uh, is not sure if it's Nizonet or Hanizonet. All right, well, with that question, let's see if we can have an answer. Now, Shemuel said that um, a found item that a widow finds, she can keep. She sees a, a watch in the street, 
she can keep it. If we say that it's a condition and the orphans can decide if they want to sustain her, then fine, otherwise not, then the statement of Shemuel would make sense. This would be in a case where the orphans decided, we're not going to sustain you, right? You keep your wages, you keep whatever you find, and that's why when this found object, she keeps. So Shemuel's law, uh, it makes sense. But if we say, the, without a head, nizonet, and it's a prescription, the orphans have to sustain her, whether they want to or not. Well, then they are in the same position as the husband, just like when she's married, whatever she finds goes to the husband, so also whatever she finds will go to the orphans because they have to and they are sustaining her. So uh, then what, what would Shemuel be talking about? Uh, so that would prove that Hanizone is a condition. But we say not necessarily. It could be, in fact, Nizonet that there's an obligation. And even if they are sustaining her, nevertheless, she can keep the item that she finds. Why? Because the only reason that the item that she finds goes to the husband, why, why did the rabbis institute that? That's only so that it was, there shouldn't be ill will between the wife and husband. If she finds some item worth a million dollars, and now the husband is going and he's working hard and feeding her, and meanwhile she has a million dollars, so he's going to feel ill will that she is rich and he still has to provide for her. And so therefore we say, listen, as long as he's providing the, the food and, 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 and house and everything, so anything she finds, like anything she makes wages, goes to him, that will uh, that will provide for shalom bayit. But the orphans, so let them have ill will toward, towards, towards her. Who cares? They're not, you know, they're not married to each other. They have a, a monetary obligation. You know, if someone owes me rent and then uh, I win the lottery, so they still owe me rent. So then they, they uh, begrudge that they have to pay rent to someone who, has, uh, who won the lottery. doesn't matter. They still have to pay, so let them begrudge it. So we don't care about shalom bayit between the orphans and their stepmother. Uh, so therefore, um, she gets, she uh, keeps whatever she um, finds, even if they, uh, even if they are sustaining her. So now that we're on the topic of uh, the widow and the orphans, we continue. And the, the other obligations also apply. Any chores that a wife needs to do for her husband, right? we listed back, back then seven different chores, a widow also has to do when she is living in the house and being sustained by the orphans, right? She would actually, um, in Galil, she would be remain living in the house of her of her deceased husband. So she has to do all those. That would include uh, laundry and making the dough, um, except that she does not have to mix the wine and fill it. That she does for her husband as an act of endearment. Here's here I'm serving serving you wine. She doesn't have to serve the orphans. Uh, making the bed is also an act of endearment and intimacy. She makes their bed that they sleep in together. She does not need to do that for the orphans. And washing his, washing her husband's 
face and hands and legs that also um, especially shows her special affection to her husband and is not a fundamental requirement and she would not do that for her for the orphans and another on the subject of doing work for others uh, says an important principle anything that a slave would do for his master right a slave is you know, following his master and doing even menial work and helping the master out so a student also does for his teacher so you see in those days students would just come to class and pay attention and do their homework and then go home they would actually serve the master physically attending to the master's needs getting them food um, uh, uh, um, taking care of their, their laundry, anything that the master wanted was part of the uh, of the relationship and increased reverence uh, between the student and teacher, uh, except for removing his shoes. A slave, one of his jobs was to untie the master's shoes. Remember, they're walking in streets that are full of uh, you know, all kinds of uh, animal waste and things. So this was a very menial job that a slave would do. And uh, if people saw that the student was doing it and not knowing better, they'd say, oh, that must be his slave. And uh, that, that would not be appropriate for a student. But Ava says this is only true that the student doesn't doesn't take off his master's his teacher's shoes when people don't know him and they'll say oh I guess that's a slave and think he's a evid he's not Jewish but if people know him also that's his that's a student then the student should uh, take off his master's shoes in other words it is appropriate for a student to be that subservient to the teacher even take off his shoes we just don't want him to be mistaken for being a slave. Uh, you know, it might, might be hard for him to get married then. Says, even in a place where people don't know him, if the student is wearing tefillin, then that will show that he is fully Jewish and not an Evid Kana'ani. Uh, but if he's not wearing tefillin, and well, usually they would wear tefillin most of the day, but if it happens to be that he's not wearing tefillin, like if it's at night, and then people seeing will not will think it's an Evid Kana'ani. Technically, an Evid Kanani is uh, like a woman is. And um, so that, therefore they could voluntarily wear tefillin, but generally they did not. And therefore, if they're not wearing tefillin, that would uh, would uh, would indicate that it was an evid. So, but if he's wearing tefillin, then people looking would say, "Oh, that's a student." So it's fine. It's fine for the student to do this um, subservient labor for his teacher. But he should not be, have to be mistaken as an, as a slave. Uh, further on this theme, Rabbi Yochanan says that if a teacher prevents, stops a student from serving him, then he is removing a kindness from the student. It's actually good for the student to uh, to uh, serve the master. In other words, teachers shouldn't be all humble and say, no, I don't want you to serve me. It's actually good part of the education uh, of the student that they should serve the master. So he, the teacher should allow it. As the Pasuk says, 
uh, it's a difficult pasuk to translate. Uh, here JPS translates, a friend owes loyalty to one who fails, though he forsakes the fear, fear of the Almighty, uh, which would make sense in the context here of Yov uh, saying, you know, even if I did fail, I deserve to have good friends, unlike you guys, right, who uh, accuse me of all kinds of terrible things. Okay, but the translation admits that the Hebrew is uncertain, so it's difficult to translate. Here they translate to him who is uh, ready to faint uh, from his ki- friend, uh, kindness is due. Okay, but anyway, the Hanan is uh, reading it as meaning to remove, as in the Pasuk, Achenu Hemasu et Babenu, our brethren melted our hearts, meaning they removed our courage. So if a teacher removes himself and does not give the opportunity uh, to the student to serve him, then Mereu said he is preventing kindness uh, to him. So if a, a teacher wants to be kind, he should allow himself to be served by the student. Rav Nachman The continuation of that of the pasuk is, he forsakes the fear of heaven, meaning the teacher is also removing the fear of heaven from the student, because a student can learn fear, fear of heaven through the teacher, by serving the teacher, being subservient, lowering his ego, and uh, honoring the, the Torah that his teacher represents, that will be a pathway to which he can learn also to have Yirat Shamayim. Uh, just like the in the Ten Commandments, Kibbut Ava'em is on the first, uh, the last of the first five, on the Ben Adam Lamakom, because of the kind of transition, uh, even though they are people, and so you're uh, Ben Adam Lachavero, nevertheless it's a transition because through honoring parents, one can understand honoring one's own creator. Uh, so too, this is actually good training in Yirat Shamayim to have Yirah from one's master. Okay, back to our regular subject. If a widow goes and seizes movable items for her uh, sustenance, I guess the orphans are not you know, providing uh, the, the money or, or food on time. She goes and seizes the movable objects. That is valid, right? Whatever, but the avad, what she takes, uh, she can keep. Uh, this is also a baraita that confirms the same law. And there was an actual case when Ravdimi came from Israel, from Israel. He reported that Rav Shabtai's daughter-in-law came and you know, she um, was a widow and she wanted money. She came and seized a saddlebag. This is a diskayam uh, that may come from Greek, uh, meaning d, meaning double, a do d sack, a double sack that would go on each side of a donkey. So she grabbed this uh, sack that was full of money and for for her uh, sustenance and the rabbis got together and they said yep she can keep it they didn't find any legal way to take it away from her so that is valid said she can seize movable objects only for her sustenance but if she's owed a marriage contract then and she seizes movable objects then we take it back from her because a marriage contract she has a lien on property even if it's sold she should go and 
and get the property that's leaned, and she cannot just go and take movable objects. However, Mor Bar Asher rejects what Avina said. So why would you say that in the Kitubah, uh, if she comes and grabs stuff, uh, she has to give it back because the Kitubah is paid by land and not by movable objects? That's the same is true also for sustenance. That That is paid. She has a lien on land and not on movable objects. And so, uh, so it should be the same thing. If she grabs movable objects, then she should have to pay it back. Go and go and grab land that the orphans have in their possession, if you want. Rather, it's the same law for both of them. There is no difference. And just like for sustenance, although uh, she has a right to be paid from land, uh, but if she does go and um, seize, seizes movable assets, she keeps them also for Kituba. She also gets to keep them even though it's uh, uh, her lien is only on land. Rav supports Ravina by saying that we also hear, heard that Rava teaches the same way that you do, uh, that if she uh, removes uh, objects for sustenance, she can keep them, but not for a ketubah. Amar Rabbi Yochanan Mishmed Rabbi Yoseh ben Zimra. So he says that if a widow waits two or three years without demanding sustenance, she just doesn't come to the orphans to ask them, ask, to ask them for money, she loses her right to that sustenance. She cannot go back and collect it. Right? What are you doing waiting so long? It means that you didn't care about it, so you must have forgiven your right. We ask a question on Rabbi Yochanan's statement. Um, if you told me, if after two years she loses the right, why do you have to tell me three years? What do you mean two or three? Rather, it says two or three for different cases. If she's poor, then two years shows that she um, uh, forgoes her right to sustenance because a poor person needs the money and so it gets, she gets a shorter, le- um, a shorter runway. If after two years she doesn't come when she, she's poor, that means she doesn't want to take it. Whereas if she's rich, so she has other funds, she's sustaining herself. So she just never got around to uh, collecting it. So for that, really only after three years, that shows that she doesn't care and is, uh, forgives that money. Or another way to answer it is, uh, if uh, she's a woman who's not shy, and she'll come and bang on the door and say, give me my money, then we give her two years, because after two years, this not shy person didn't ask for it, so it means she forgot about it and forgave it. Whereas if she's shy, a modest woman, she's shy, she doesn't want to come, so then it's understandable that even two and a half years, maybe she's too shy to uh, come and ask for it, but after three years, then we say that she forgave it. This is only about what she was due owed in the past, that after two years or three years, she can't go back and collect what was owed her in the past. But if she says, starting from now on, I want to be sustained, she has every right to do that because she doesn't lose her right for sustenance altogether. This is just getting back pay.
בעד רבי יוחנן, יתומים אומרים נתנו, והיא אומרת לא נטרתי, אמי להביא ראייה. There's a fight between the orphans and the widow. The orphans say, we gave you sustenance, right? We gave you, I don't know, in the beginning of the year, a check to last you the whole year. And she says, no, I never got anything. Who, uh, uh, who has to bring the proof? We always have a principle, whoever is trying to extract money. Um, but the question is, who is who is in possession of the property and who is extracting money? This would seem to be the obvious choice that the orphans are the ones that are actually holding in charge of the property, right? They're controlling the land, and therefore the widow would have to bring a proof that she was never paid, right? Here, look, right? Here's all my uh, 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 checked. Uh, deposited checks and you never paid me. Or do we say that the inheritance is actually, the land is actually under the possession of the widow. Why so? Because she has a lien on the land to pay her sustenance. And therefore, as long as she has a lien, she actually owns the land, even though the orphans are the ones that are farming it, um, nevertheless she owns it. And therefore she has the chazaka and it's the orphans. They have to bring a proof that they paid. So let's try to, let's try to find an answer. Tashima detani levi almana kolman shelo niset aliyatomim lavira aya. Niset aleha lavira aya. Levi has a good answer that splits the difference. He says that uh, she, if she is an, an, or, um, a widow and she's not yet married, she's still single, then the orphans have to bring a proof because she, uh, as a single person, has a right to uh, lean on the property she can collect. Niset, once she gets remarried, however, then uh, she's under her husband's authority. He's taking care of her sustenance. And so now the orphans have no obligation to give her sustenance anymore. So she loses the lien on the property. Once she loses the lien, if she wants to go back and collect, now she has to bring the proof because the land is under the orphan's domain. All right, that's Levi's opinion. says, actually, the answer to the question is, uh, this is all Rabbi Yochanan's question, is uh, that it's a machloket between two tanaim that are recorded in the following baraita. Um, if a, a woman, she's, an or, she's a widow, and she goes and takes some of the property that was in her husband's estate, and she has a, a right to it, and she sells it, and she should write down when she sells it that I'm selling this piece of land for my sustenance. And this other piece of land I'm paying towards my ketuvah. Maybe not in full, but right, it'll be towards that much. She should document exactly what she's getting for each part. Uh, the reason for that would be uh, if she doesn't write it, then the uh, the orphans will be able to come and tell her, oh, you, you sold this, this amount, this uh, land, that was all for your ketuvah. And the mezonot, oh, we paid you separately for that. No, so you see that she has to bring a proof uh, for what she's using it for, so it's a, the burden of proof is on her. Whereas Rabbi Yosef said, she can just sell it, 
and just write, I'm selling it for, uh, she doesn't have to write the reason. And in that way, her options and her power will be enhanced because that way she can come later and say, oh, that so that land that I sold, that was for my sustenance, but you never paid me the Ketuvah and now you also pay the Ketuvah. So that way she can decide later what she wants to apply that to and that way she, that keeps her options for collection open. So aren't they disagreeing regarding Rabbi Yochanan's very question? According to Rabbi Uda, who says that she should write explicitly what I'm selling this land for sustenance or for the Ketubah, it's because he thinks that the orphans are the ones that have the chazaka on the land, and she's going to have to bring a proof to show, hey, I got paid for this, but I didn't get paid for that. So she has to keep all her receipts. Whereas the Biosa says, she doesn't have to write anything because she is in the possession of the land. And it would be the orphan's uh, obligation to prove that, oh no, use, use that money for sustenance. So we, we don't have to pay you sustenance uh, again. So therefore, she does not have to keep the receipts and tally of what she used it for, since it's not, the burden of proof is on the orphans. So therefore, it's a machloket tanaim. Uh, now we reject this. Maybe, in fact, both Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yose here would agree that the uh, the uh, money is in the hands of the, the the land is in the hands of the widow, and therefore the orphans have have the burden of proof. And Rebiuda says, really, according to Rebiuda, from the letter of the law, she doesn't have to write anything, and they would have to bring a proof that she didn't use the money for whatever she says she uses it for. But Rebiuda nevertheless said she should write, I'm selling this part of the land for sustenance and that part of the land for ketubah, because uh, just better for uh, for the uh, aesthetics. Uh, we don't want people to look at her as a glen. Look how much she's taking. You ever see someone at a wedding, they're holding two giant plates, right? It says, okay, you know, that, that's, a, that's a lot for one person to eat. They say, no, no, I made one for, I made one plate for my wife, one for me. It says, yeah, yeah, that's what they all say, right? So if she's selling so much and everyone's looking, it's like, wow, you eat that much? Look how much your list of land you're selling. So she should make it clear uh, so that she doesn't get a bad reputation that she must be spending too much on food. Uh, that part of it is for Ketubah. But it's only good advice, and she doesn't actually have to. Uh, and I'm going to bring a proof that the Buddha was just getting, giving good advice, but really the burden of proof is on the orphans. Because after all, the fact that it's good advice must be so, because if not, if it was required, then we could have answered, solved the Biochanan that same question from the following Mishnahs coming up on uh, the next stuff. She can sell uh, land for sustenance, even without a betin, and she just writes that I sold this for mizonot. She should write it. And now we we don't uh, we don't prove from there. How come we don't prove from there that oh see she needs to keep receipts? That's because 
it's a burden of proof is on her. We don't say that. The reason is because that Mishnah, we everybody all know, is only giving her good advice uh, so that she says, this is from Mizonot and not from my Ketubah, and that way it will make her life easier. But technically she doesn't have to. That's why we didn't use that Mishnah. Uh, to answer the Biochanan's question. So the same explanation we're gonna give we give we will give to that Mishnah, the Biudah here also just tells good advice, not a letter of the law. All right, that's all one way to say that it's not a machokatanaim, and now we'll say also the other way. Or maybe, in fact, everyone agrees that the land is in the holding of the orphans, and therefore it's upon the um, the widow has to bring the burden of proof. And the reason why the Biyose says that don't write anything, you know, just uh, leave it, just say I'm, I, I sold the land, and uh, not to write anything, even though the burden of proof will be on her, is kashisha, as the elder Abaya said, He explained to the Biyose why the Biyose says not to write anything. If someone is on his deathbed and he says, Give 200 zoos to this person that I owe, I owe him money. Now, when something someone says a shchiv mera, uh, when a, someone on deathbed says something, then it has to be given to him even from land. So it's a serious gift. Now, the person receiving it, he can receive it as payment of the debt that the, the, one, the person who died owed him, or he can receive it as a gift. It's his choice to say, you know, this was a gift that he gave me, and then he can go and also uh, collect his debt. Now, obviously, it's better for the recipient to say, that was just a gift, and I'm still going to go and collect the debt. Right? If he takes it as a gift, isn't that better for him? Because in fact, not only can he now collect, can, can he still collect the debt, the debt, he has a lien on the, the person who dies property, even if that property has been sold. And so by taking the other one as a gift, a gift you cannot collect from property that's sold. Uh, so designating that one as a gift, he can still go back and collect the debt and collect it from sold property. So it's better uh, to have that option to designate it as such. Same is true um, for the Biyose. If she leaves it blank, she says, I'm selling this an unspecified purpose, that leaves her the option later that if there is no more funds in the estate, uh, she can say, I received this as sustenance, but I'm still on my ketuvah, and she can go and get lien property, even if it was sold, to pay the ketuvah. And so that is better for her. Now, even though, according to the B.O.C., she will have to prove, even though this we're now following the opinion that says she has to meet, the burden of proof is on her, nevertheless, it still would be in her advantage. So she'll bring witnesses, right? She'll make sure that she has witnesses, that uh, she used this money for sustenance. And then with witnesses, she'll be able to go and collect her full amount of her ketubah. Whereas if she specifies, oh, this was for sustenance, then it uh, doesn't matter if she has proof or not, she won't be able to go and collect the full ketubah from the uh, from the um, 
uh, land that was already sold. Um, so you see that it's not just the you know the 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 the, the uh, facts on the ground, but also how you designate right what cat what category you put something in uh, will make a big difference in the final outcome. Baruch Adonai Amen v'amen.